turn to the book of Ephesians. We'll pick up where we left off. So we've been centering in on verses 3 through 14 in the first chapter of the book of Ephesians. And I wanted to remind everybody that this is one continuous sentence in the Greek. All 11 verses are one continuous sentence. And as I mentioned before, I've come to the conclusion that I think Paul is just absolutely overwhelmed with Yahweh's goodness, his foreknowledge, his divine orchestration, and his blessings that, that he has for us. And I think he just can't stop going on and on and on again about it. And I think that's the reason that the sentence is so long without a period and such as that. And again, if you remember, we made some brackets the last time I taught around, around the verses, 3 through 6, 7 through 10, 11 through 14. The first bracket was around the verses 3 through 6. And it was titled, I, I asked you to write out to the side of that bracket and title it Election. And then the second bracket, we put brackets around verses 7 through 10, and I asked you to title out to the side of it, or at least list it as a category, as redemption. And the third bracket, verses 11 through 14, we titled it inheritance. And this third bracket is what we're going to deal with today. Now, in covering these verses 3 through 10 so far, we've determined that all the blessings that Yahweh's bestowed on us are because of His sovereignty. Every good, Everything good that we will ever obtain in life or in the life to come has absolutely nothing to do with us or any plans that we have made, but all things are based solely on the sovereign will and the plan that he has for us. Even more so, all that we gain is not by any measure of our own efforts, but completely by his grace and his mercy. That's how we obtain anything. In verses 3 through 6, we can just... We can see just how we're chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And it doesn't have anything to do with us. I may mention before that your salvation is ordained even before you existed. In verses, in verses 3 and 4, it's, it's inevitable. If, if Paul's right in what he's writing, your salvation was already determined before the world would ever begin. Before the foundations were ever set, Yahweh had already determined whether or not you would, you would be his or not. Before time began, before Moses and the law, and even before Adam was created, Yahweh had already planned our eternal place in Christ. And I think that's wonderful. That's wonderful. That's the doctrine of election. It's, it's really that simple, but that's the doctrine of election. I know there's some people who say stuff like this. Well, well, what about, what about all the things that we need to do in order to be saved? And well, sure, your actions are evidence of your salvation. Your actions are definitely evidence of your salvation, and they are fruit that others can see that's produced after our transformation. But according to verse 4 in chapter 1, Paul says that we're already chosen to be found blameless in Christ. Not our efforts, not our efforts, but his righteousness. The way that we're found blameless is not by anything that you do. That's sanctification. Sanctification is, is are the things that you put forth. But you're not found blameless by the things that you do. You're found blameless, covered in the blood of Christ. That's how we appear blameless in his sight, through his, his son's blood. So, so while, yes, the evidence of our salvation is necessary in the means of sanctification, like I just said, it's by no means the way of justification. So that sums up verses 3 through 6 on election. And now in verses 7 through 10, Paul talks about the way that Yahweh redeemed those who he predetermined before the foundation of the world. Verse 7 says, we have redemption through Yeshua's blood for the forgiveness of our sins, transgressions, if you will, according to the riches 
of his grace. So Yahweh didn't just plan and predetermine that, that we would be with him in eternity. He didn't just elect us and leave us hanging there. He didn't bring us halfway and stop. He didn't, he didn't just do all that, but he also planned and provided the means for us to be there. He brought about our redemption through the person of Christ. So we're born sinners, every single one of us. There's not one in here that, weren't, that wasn't born that way. Everybody, after the fall of Adam, after, after the fall of Adam, every single person that is born today is born a sinner. You're going to be a sinner. It's, just, it's guaranteed it's going to happen. There's only one, with the exception of one, there's only one man that's ever walked the face of the earth that, that, that never sinned. Never will sin. There's no guile found in his mouth. He was perfect. He was unblemished. And that's Yahweh's son. <clears throat> now, Yahweh is completely holy, and he declares that every man that stands before him be holy. That's the way it works. Yahweh has no dealing with sin, so there's no way that a man can stand in the presence of Yahweh without being purified by some means. You have to be purified. This is the whole reason for the priesthood. This is the whole priest for the Levitical scene. This is the reason that, that the high priest went into the temple year after year on the Day of Atonement, sprinkled blood upon the altar, purified the nation of Israel, at least in a physical form. He purified the nation of Israel and presented Israel's sins and things of that nature to Yahweh. But he had to do it with, with, with blood. He had to do it. We, they had to be covered in some way. You know, he laid the, laid the sins of Israel on the, on the head of the bull, and then they sacrificed the bull and things of that nature. Well, the means of eternal purification that Yahweh chose to redeem us through was by the blood of his very own son, his perfect son, his righteous son. And so we were bought. That's the way we, that's the way we're redeemed. Yeshua died, his blood was shed, he was raised victoriously, and because of all that, he has now made the way for all who were elected or planned from the beginning to be in eternity with Yahweh. He was the first fruits of the dead. That means he died. His life was sacrificial for the sake of others, for the sake of you and me, so that we may have what he has, perfection before the Father. That's what, that's what the whole plan was. That's redemption. That is redemption at its finest right there. Found in verses 7 through 10, that's what, that's what we've seen the last time I talked. And that brings us to the last part of this extremely long sentence, and this is where we'll pick up today. Our last category, we titled it out to the side of it. We put brackets around it. We labeled it inheritance. But before we begin in this last bracket with verse 11, I want to reread all the verses, verses 3 through 14 again. I do this every time so that we, so that, that our mind stays fresh on what we're reading. But I'll read and start in verse 3, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. It says this. It says, Blessed be the Almighty and the Father of our Lord, the Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted through Christ for himself according to his favor and his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he favored us within the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he planned in him for the administration of the days of fulfillment, to bring everything together in the Messiah, both things in heaven and things on earth, in him. In him we were also made his inheritance, predestined according to the purpose of the one who works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will, so that we who had already put our hope in the Messiah 
might bring praise to his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in him when you believed, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He is the down payment of our inheritance for the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Hallelujah. Now the last time I taught, I told you, as we get into the inheritance bracket, what we're going to deal with today, by the time we get done with this, I'm going to have to teach a sermon, or somebody's going to have to teach a sermon on humiliation, just to humble us, because we are an extremely, extremely blessed people. We'll walk out of here with our heads so big tonight, we might not fit through the door. So uh, I just really think I just really think that you'll be overwhelmed and blessed by this. I really do. So uh, are you ready? All right, let's do it. Verse 11, it says, In him we were made his inheritance. Let's stop right there. Now, your Bible may read like this. This is, this is going to be somewhat technical, so try to stay with me. I'll take my time through it and try to work this out, but it's going to be somewhat technical. In him we were made his inheritance. Your Bible may read like this, In whom also we have obtained an inheritance. This is no problem. It's okay that it reads this way. I want to look at this verse for a second because it's, like I said, it's kind of technical, and I believe that some people in here will appreciate the explanation. First, let's look at the verb in the sentence. What tense is the verb in? Were made or have obtained? <clears throat> These are both past tense, right? I'm not, a, I'm not an English scholar, but I believe that both of them are in the past tense, okay? Now, Paul's talking about something that is yet future, right? Our inheritance is future to us always, at least as at least in the eternal sense. When we look at eternal inheritance, we're talking about something that's far off. We're not talking about something that's happened now. We're definitely not talking about something that's happened in the past. All right, so the, so the, verb, is, the verb is past tense, but the, but the wording right here, we're talking about something that's futuristic. Our inheritance, our inheritance is always future. The verse is speaking of eternal life, so the words we were made or even we have obtained inheritance should be referencing the future not the past, at least in our thinking. However, in the Greek language, a lot of times when an author was so sure about the future, he would state what he believed about the future in the past tense. And that's what they call in the Greek past future. That's just what they call past future tense is what, is what they call it. This, isn't a great, this is a great example of that, but let me give you another example. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6. You, you may not even have to flip your page. But Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6, it says this. It says, He also raised us up and seated us with Him in the heavens. That's what the, that's what the verse reads. Now, we know the person writing this letter, which is Paul, is not seated in the heavens while he's writing this letter, right? He's on earth. He's not seated in the heavenlies. He's, he's on earth, and he's writing this letter. And we know that we're not, you and I, are not seated in the heavens right now. We are sitting in a church in Conyers. That's, that's where we're at. However, he is so sure about his destination that he states it as if he already it's already happened in eternity past. It's, it's as good as done. It's already happened. So that's another example of past-future in the Greek. And this is okay. That's the way the Greek language works, and that's fine. It's all right. Just because the English may not work that way, we have some crazy things the way the English language works too. But the Greek language, it's okay to use it that way. So don't let, don't let it be a stumbling block to you for when, you, when you're reading this. I agree with Paul because what has been decided by Yahweh is sure to come to pass, right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. What does Romans chapter 4 and verse 21 it say? It says, uh, Abraham didn't waver in his faith 
because he was fully convinced that what Yahweh had promised, he was also able to perform. It was going to happen. And, and that reference right there, Abraham's talking about raising up seed from dead, deteriorated loins, at least in Abraham's mind. Abraham said, I'm 100 years old. I'm not having a child. Sarah's 90 years old. We're not having a child. But he says, Abraham, I'll come back in a year. You're going to have a child. Abraham believed him. He believed in faith. Whatever Yahweh had promised, he knew that it would take place. And also in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 23, it says, Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Yahweh, when he promises, it's as good as done. You and I, we make promises to people, or you probably have in your life, and you just don't keep them. You tell somebody you're going to do something, you just don't keep them. Governments do that. Governments make promises. They don't keep them. Schools make promises. They don't keep them. Husbands, wives, children, moms, dads, aunts, and uncles, we all make promises. We don't keep them. There's one person that makes a promise, and he don't ever not keep it. That's Yahweh. Good or bad. Good or bad, mind you. It's not always a good promise, but good or bad, he always keeps his promises. So if our election and our redemption and our inheritances are all decided and planned out by Yahweh, then we can be certain that they will all happen according to his will. All right, so it's okay to believe like Paul. It's all right. <clears throat> it's okay to use the past future tense and claim our inheritance. We should have that kind of confidence in the master of the universe. By all means, he created the heavens and the earth, and if we don't think that that's great enough and grandiose enough that we can't have confidence in that. How in the world can we have confidence in anything else that he done? I have all the confidence in the world that, that Yahweh created the heavens and the earth. He can definitely save my soul. He created it. He controls all things, and so what he speaks or promises, he's just and he's faithful to accomplish it. Now, still looking at verse 11, there's a little more to it. Excuse me. There's a little more to it than that. We know why Paul uses a past tense verb for an action that's yet future. We just discussed that. But we still need to reconcile the differences in the translations. My, my Bible says this. The, I'm, I'm reading the HCSB. And my Bible says this. In him we were also made his inheritance. Okay? The KJV won't say that. The KJV may say in whom also we have obtained an inheritance. All right? While some Bibles say, in him we were also made an inheritance, like my Bible, and other Bibles say, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, the, the first way means that we are the inheritance, and the second way means that we receive the inheritance, if you read both, if you read both versions, okay? How can it be both? How can we be somebody else's inheritance, and also, at the same time, be the one to receive the inheritance? Hopefully I can explain, because it's, it's perfectly fine to be translated either way. Both ways are grammatically correct when extracted from the Greek. Both of them are. And both are right in the sense of what they say. Let me give you the first way. Let me give you the explanation of the first way. If your Bible reads like mine and you're reading the HCSB, it's going to read this. In him we were also made an inheritance. Then we have to take the meaning of that phrase and say that we are Christ, Christ's inheritance, Right? That's, that's, that's what it says. That's what we have to understand it to say. We are his inheritance. We are what Christ inherited. He inherited us. Now, you're probably thinking the same thing I'm thinking. Why in the world would Christ want to inherit us? He got shafted. He got shafted, you know. But it's true. But it's true. 
Christ did inherit us. Remember that Yeshua said in John chapter 6 and verse 37, All the Father gives me shall what? They shall come to me. See, when Yeshua died for us, Yahweh didn't just sit him at the right hand of the throne. Once he was raised victoriously, he also gets the spoils of the war. He inherited the reason that he had to die, you and me. He inherited the church. That was his inheritance. The church is, is, is Christ's inheritance. You and I are his spoils. He paid for us. He died for you and me. We are the gift of the Father to the Son. And brothers and sisters, if that don't give you some sense of self-worth, I don't know what in the world would. You are a gift that Yahweh thought was good enough to give to his only begotten son because of the work that he did at the torture state, because of his perfectness, because of his unblemished life. That was his gift. So that's the first way it's translated. And let's think about the other way. If your Bible reads like the KJV, you may be reading the KJV today, and that's fine. I don't have a preference in Bibles. I guess I have a preference. I use HCSB because it's easier for me to read, but the KJV gets this right, I believe. In the KJV, it says, in whom we have obtained an inheritance. Well, that's correct also. Grammatically, linguistically, it's correct. We do receive Christ as our inheritance. See, in the, in the one way he receives us and in the other way we receive him, and believe me, folks, we got the better end of the deal. Guaranteed, we got the better end of the deal. So when you become a Christian, he is your inheritance. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 real quick. Just to, just to give a little bit of confirmation, Bible verse here. First Peter in chapter 1 and verse 3, and I'll read following. It says, Blessed be the mighty one and the father of our Lord, Yeshua the Messiah. According to his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted, and unfading, kept in heaven, for you. That's our inheritance. Christ is part of our inheritance. Do you know that 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 17 says when we become joined with Christ that we're one spirit with him. We're one spirit with him. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 20, Paul says, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And that's what happens when we live like we're supposed to. You can't tell where Christ leaves off and the creature picks up. We look synonymous with him. We look just like him when we do what we're supposed to do. And so it's true. He is our inheritance and we are his. And it should be simply because we're, we're supposed to be one anyway. We're supposed to be one with Christ. When, when Yahweh looks at us, he's supposed to see Christ. He's supposed to see that unblemished person. That's what he's supposed to see when he sees us. I believe that's the reason that different translating committees translate this very differently because either one works. However, there is one more thing that we can do to determine what this phrase, or how this phrase would make the most sense here. Anybody got an idea? Context. 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 Context is always the key to determining what the Bible should say and what it shouldn't say. Translators are great. They work hard. They do a good job. And Bible committees put together Bibles, and they are are 99% of the time dead on the money, and they translate right. However... When this phrase right here can be translated two different ways, and both of them are grammatically correct and linguistically correct from the Greek, we have to do our part in order to understand it. And the only way we can figure it out is derive it from the context. I think the second option, that's not what my Bible says, but I think the second option fits the context the best. I believe the KJV gets it right right here. I believe the verse should read, In whom we have obtained an inheritance. 
I see the context all the way down through the sentence, talking about from verses 3 on. I see the context all the way down through this sentence, talking about Yahweh's plan for us, his election for us, his redemption for us. And I believe the inheritance that Paul has in mind here is no different. It is an inheritance for us. So Christ is our inheritance. This is how richly blessed we are. Christ is your inheritance. He's my inheritance. So let's go on to verse 11 again. In whom we have obtained an inheritance, predestined according to the purpose of the one who works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will. We know who the whom is. It's the son. That's whom the, that's, that is whose inheritance we obtain. Now it says that it, the inheritance was predestined according to the one who works out everything. Who is the one who works out everything? It's Yahweh. Yahweh. Matthew mentioned that last uh, last night, I think, or maybe maybe a couple of sermons ago. Or I, I don't remember. But anyway, he mentioned he mentioned Yahweh working out everything according to His will. And and uh, in other words, Yahweh planned this great inheritance for us to receive. And not only has He planned it out, but He also set everything up in place for it to come to pass. And Paul says He did it in agreement with the decision of His will. The Greek word used right here is. For the for the phrase works out in my in my Bible, the Greek word here is the word energio or energeo, depending on how you say it, I guess. It's where we get our English word energy from, or energized. That's where it comes from. So Yahweh doesn't just devise the whole plan; He also energizes it. I think about it when I think about this right here. I think about those big electronic electromagnets and stuff like that. There's you know electricity is applied to them. They swing out over a big thing of scrap metal and when the energy hits the magnet all of a sudden everything comes sucking up out of a box truck or something like that and it hangs on the metal before that magnet is energized it's just a magnet it's just swung out over there and it don't pick up anything but when they shoot the juice to that thing all of a sudden everything's coming up out of that box truck it's the same way with with Yahweh and his plans when he divides a plan and shoots the juice to it he works everything out according to his plan hey everything starts to come to pass it kind of kind of goes like that. We don't we don't serve a mighty one with limits. I don't serve one that has an idea but he can't pull it pull it all together. I don't I don't serve a mighty one like that. I serve one that when he plans it comes to pass. He made that abundantly clear when he brought the Israelites out of Egypt. He controlled every facet of nature that he used to turn Pharaoh into the laughing stock of Egypt. He controlled every single piece of nature. Folks, he can work anything out. And he always does this for one reason, for one reason, for the praise of his glory. Not for yours, not for mine, not for anybody else's. He does it for one reason, so that he will be glorified, that he will be magnified. And everybody will not look at the creature, but look at the creator and say, wow, what a mighty creator we serve. You'll see that in verse 12. Let's read it. It says, so that we who had already put our hope in the Messiah might bring praise to his glory. The his right there is in reference to Yahweh. Bring praise to Yahweh's glory. We put our hope in Christ, and that brings Yahweh glory. Do you know why he destroyed Pharaoh and delivered the Israelites? For the praise of his glory. You know why he destroyed the Canaanite cities and he gave them to Israel? For the praise of his glory. Do you know why he destroyed the perfect son, hung him on a tree, allowed men to mock him and spit on him and stab him and beat him and persecute him to the great extent to the greatest extent of the word, even to the point of death, he did all the all that so that you wouldn't count any of your works as worthy, but so that you would accept the inheritance that Yahweh's given you 
which is his unblemished son, and for the praise of his glory. So that you don't look at yourself and say, hey, I did this, or I did that, or I kept all the Sabbaths, or I didn't eat pork, or I didn't shave my face, or I wore the tassels. Don't look at any of that stuff, because none of that stuff. It's all good. It's all good. Yahweh declares, I mean, wants us to do it. But don't look at that stuff as justification. Look at it as sanctification. Yahweh's making you holy as you walk in his way. He's making you look the way you want to he wants you to look. He's making you become just like his son. He's making you be a law keeper. But not but not to justify you. Not to justify you. You're doing that because you're doing that because he's already justified you. The justification comes in the person of Christ. Not in you. Not in you. And we think of our fleshly human minds when we see somebody showboating on a ball field or puffing themselves up. I use ball because I, I play for for a long time, and I know how I used to be. I'd play shortstop and catch balls behind my back, between my legs, and I, I did it for one reason, because I wanted somebody over there on the stands to say, man, that guy can pick it right there. That's why I did it. I'd hit them balls as hard as I could and hope they went over the tops of the trees out there, and I did it for one reason, because I wanted somebody to say, God mighty, he can hit it. Watch him. Watch him play. Look how fast he is. Watch him catch those balls, and I did it for that reason. It's uh, It's not a good thing. When you see somebody like that, you think, man, he's prideful. He needs to humble himself. He needs to not be, not showboat like that. Somebody, somebody needs to knock him down a notch or two. You know? And you're right. You're right. That's what needs to happen. It's an arrogant thing for us to be prideful or want, want the glory for something. But it's not arrogant for Yahweh to want the glory. Yahweh wants the glory. He wants all of it. He wants all the praise and all the glory. And it's not arrogant at all for him to want it. Not one bit. He deserves the glory. He doesn't think he's good. He's he is good. For crying out loud, he give good its meaning. Amen. It's meaning. He didn't. It did. He didn't. He don't need somebody to tell him he's good. He knows he's good. He's everything. He is everything. Let's face it. Who's his competition? You know, who's going to stand up next to him? You know, no one. No one. There is no one that's greater than the Almighty Creator of heaven and earth. So he deserves the glory. He deserves all of it. So it's all for Yahweh's glory. The planning of our inheritance is so that we would, so that He would receive the glory, and that's the end of verse twelve. Let's look at verse thirteen. It says, "In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and Him when you believed, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit." In Him, here is the reference to the same one that we have as our inheritance, that being Yeshua. So Paul says that in him, Christ, when you heard the word of truth, that he was the son of Yahweh, that he lived a sinless life, that he died a wrongful death, that he was raised victoriously, and that it sits at the right hand of the Father. When you heard all this, which is the gospel message of your salvation, and when you believed it at that point, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was promised to you. And when you believed all that, when you heard all of it, just like just like the eunuch. You remember when Philip's riding on the wagon with him? And the Philip says... Says, how do I understand it? If, if somebody don't teach me, Philip gets up there and he and he preaches the gospel to him, and he preaches it out of Isaiah 53. This is where he preaches it to him, Acts chapter eight. And Philip says, "What do hindereth me from being baptized?" You know what he believed? He believed the gospel message. At that time, Paul says right here, at that time, he was sealed with the Holy Spirit. At that point, you were sealed, and at that point, I was sealed. At that very time that you believe the gospel, you were sealed. Paul doesn't say anything right here about, hey, if you, you can speak in tongues, you've received the Holy Spirit. 
He doesn't mention that right here. He doesn't say anything about the laying on of hands to receive the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say any of that. He just says, when you believe the gospel message, the truth about Christ, you are sealed. <clears throat> the Greek word for sealed right here is forgizo, if I'm saying it right. And it literally signifies ownership and the full security carried by the backing and the full authority of the owner. So I want you to think about being sealed for a second by Yahweh. Being sealed for a second. In other words, you're owned and you carry the full authority of the one who sealed you. You had the full authority of your inheritance, which is Christ. Christ redeemed you, and Yahweh sealed you. This is absolutely beautiful to me. I want you to understand this. This is why Yahweh provided us with the inheritance, so that we would carry the full authority of the one who sealed us. So that when Yahweh looks upon us, lowly, unworthy sinner, praise be to Yahweh, he doesn't see us. He sees his only begotten and perfect son. Brothers and sisters, when Yahweh seals you through his son, you can't be unsealed. You can't be unsealed. To further illustrate this concept, the rest of the Strong's definition of the word sealed said this. It says, sealing is the ancient world, in the ancient world, served as a legal signature which guaranteed the promise of that which was sealed. So back when a king would write a letter, Back when a king would write a letter, he would fold or roll the letter up, and then he would take uh, he would take wax. Okay, usually it was wax. Sometimes it was, sometimes it was clay, just a soft material. And he would he have a, he he would have a ring that would that may say uh, a C for Caesar or or you know some kind of signet on his ring. He would have a ring, and he would heat this ring up or either just dip this ring into a I guess some kind of clay pot or something like that with wax or clay in it. He would dip that into that wax or put, or either put the wax on the piece of paper, hot wax, and then he would take his ring and he would, he would put his ring down inside that wax where he'd put that little dot and sealed the paper. And what this meant was that that letter had been sealed, and if the seal had been broken, then, they, then, then the letter wasn't authenticated. But if that letter was still rolled up when, when the person that was to receive it received it and that seal was there on it and the ring, the signet ring, was put into that seal, then it was, it was authenticated by the person who sent it. Most of the time, kings or governors or things like that. This was, this, this was what backed the authenticity of the letter. It was proved. It's what proved it was an edict from the king. It was a guarantee for whatever was sealed under it. Except for your seal. The seal you receive when you believe that Christ is the gospel of your salvation, your seal came from a true king, a real king, a true king. When you were given the Holy Spirit of Yahweh as a seal, it is much greater than some wax stamp. All right? It is a whole lot greater. See, Romans chapter 8 and verse 14 says, All those led by Yahweh's Spirit are Yahweh's sons. You who have believed and hear today the gospel message of Yeshua, Paul says that you were given a seal of the Holy Spirit. And not only that, moving on, let's look at verse 14. It says, He is the down payment of our inheritance for the redemption of the possession to the praise of His glory. Now you might say, well, I hear, I hear all this, and that sounds good, but, but how do we know? How do we know that all this is going to come to pass? How do we know that Yahweh sealed us and preserved us and it's gonna, we're going to be in His kingdom? How do we know that? Well, what about a little bit of earnest money? That's what we would do, isn't it? Put a little down payment on it. Then you know somebody's serious. Ladies, when a when a man when a man asks you to marry him, 
If he just walks up to you and said, boy, I really like you. We've been dating for a long time, and I think I'm going to marry you, and would you marry me? Well, you don't take him serious. But if he comes up to you and gets down on one knee, and he said, boy, I just love you, and I want to marry you, and he pulls out this $2,000 diamond and starts sliding it up that finger, it brings a whole new meaning. you got a down payment right now. You know what I mean? It's the, it's the, it's the same way. It's the same way. And Kim and I, we um, we have a business and, and we rent houses. And so once in a while we buy a house here or there or whatever. Well, when we go to sign a contract on a house, the contract doesn't mean a hill of beans. They don't care if you sign 50 contracts until you give them some earnest money. But if you tell them, hey, I give $1,000, guarantee you I'll close on this thing in 30 days. Well, all of a sudden, you got a little bit of you got a little bit of interest in the game. You, it's no longer a joke. It's no longer a signing a piece of paper or what, however it works. But now they think that you're you're serious. Now, if we're concerned about whether or not this is ever going to happen, Yahweh says, "I know that you're stiff-necked people and you don't believe me like Abraham did, or maybe some of us do. But if you don't believe me like Abraham did, he said, "Well, hey, I'll give you a little bit of down payment. How about I seal you with my Holy Spirit? How about I give you a little bit of my Spirit? That's what I'm going to do for you." See, we have completely received, we hadn't completely received all of our inheritance left yet. We've got, we've got an inheritance that's to come, and we've not got it all yet. We've got a little bit to come. We're not in our new bodies, and we're, we're not dwelling in the new heavens and new earth. We're sitting right here, and we're still in these old destructible bodies, and we're, they're going to fade, and they're going to break, and they're going to fall apart, and they're going to go into the grave. But one of these days, one of these days at the sound of that last trumpet, we're coming up out of those things, and we're going to be made new, we're going to be made whole, and then we'll get the rest of our inheritance. But Yahweh still gives us a little something to hold on while we wait. Hold on to while we wait. He says, here's some, some of my spirit. I'm going to seal you with it so that the whole world knows that you're mine. You've been bought and paid for and sealed with my nature so the whole world can see that you belong to me. And the rest of verse 14 says, The spirit that is given to us is a down payment for the redemption of the possession. The possession is you and me. Possessions, you and me. We are the possession that Yahweh wants. Brothers and sisters, again, if that doesn't give you a little bit of self-worth, I can't do anything for you right here. That's that's some self-worth. Yahweh thought enough of me to save me, redeem me, elect me from the foundation of the world to seal me with His Holy Spirit and guarantee me that I'm going to be with Him in the days to come. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be there. We're still with the Holy Spirit as a possession of Yahweh. Yahweh had His only Son to redeem he, he had his only son to redeem the children that he elected before the foundation of the world. Then those he redeemed, he sealed with the Spirit until the final time when we would get the rest of our inheritance. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? And he did it all for the praise of his glory. The end of verse 14 says, once again, to the praise of his glory. Just like the end of verse 12. All of this, everything, the election, the redemption, the inheritance, all of this is for the praise of Yahweh's glory. So praise him today. If you're sitting here right now and you've been listening and you understand all the riches that Yahweh's given you, that He's blessed you with in these few verses, if you understand all that, my goodness, man, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful to know that Yahweh had a will and a plan from the foundation of the world to bring about redemption for His elect, for our inheritance. I'm so thankful. Yeshua the Messiah is our inheritance. We are joint heirs with Christ. We receive what He receives, not because we're worthy, because you'll, you'll never, ever, ever, ever be worthy of what he gives you. You'll never be worthy. But you can't do it. You can't do it. We can strive, brothers and sisters, we can reach a sanctification level where we are tip-top 
you know, we can we can keep keep going and keep going and keep going and keep going. And when I look at Brother Ron, I might say, man, I don't know. I, I can't find anything that that brother does wrong. I search the scriptures and don't see anything that he does wrong. I can say that. That's sanctification. He's growing in sanctification and, and, and growing the way that Yahweh wants him to do. But you know what? Ron's got a past. Ron's got a past. And he's not always been like that. There's a time of change. There's a time when Yahweh gives a man a new heart and he starts to walk in his ways and keep his commandments. But there's a time, there's a time before that when he didn't. And that time before that, it's, it's, a, it's a terrible thing. I don't want to see what, what Ron used to look like. I like the way he looks right now. And I don't want Ron to know what I used to look like. Man, I was a heathen. I was like Jerry said the other day. I wasn't no good. I wasn't not a, not a bit of good. People look at me and they think, Phew, that boy right there is lost and destined for hell, you know. And you know what? I was. I was lost and destined to hell. But one day, y'all already figured it all out from the foundation of the world, but one day, he gave me a new heart. And I started to walk in his ways. And I started to walk for him, not to justify myself. I already justified but to be, to be conformed to his son because I love him and I appreciate him. Not because you earned it, but because y'all, Yahweh thought enough to give it to you. Because Yahweh had a glorious will and a plan to richly bless his people. Praise, to be our, praise be to our glorious Father and his perfect heir that made it all possible for you and me. Let's, let's stand in close. Yahweh, Father, thank you. Thank you, Father. I, I hope that I wasn't a stumbling block for anybody today, Father. I pray that you're, uh, that you're exalted, that you're glorified, and that you're honored by the, by the preaching that was done here tonight. Father, I pray that you get all the glory every time, all the time. Father, I pray that we never get any recognition for anything, but that, but that you get all the glory for all good things. Father, I don't, I don't, I don't want your glory. I don't deserve it, and I don't need it, Father. I don't want your glory. I want you to have it all, and I want to be the one that gives it to you. Father, as we leave here today, let us remember that you are the King of kings, that, that, that you decide everything from the foundation of the world. And Father, we just love you. We give you praise and honor, and we're thankful for your son. Father, we lift him up today, and, and uh, we're just so thankful for, a, for an heir that's gone before us that did it right. I did it right so that we may have eternal life. Thank you for your plan, your redemption plan, your election plan, your inheritance plan. Father, we thank you for our inheritance. We give you praise for that. In his holy name, amen.